Welcome to the Fort Lee Podcast. I'm your host, Jefferson Wolf. Producing today is Chad Menegay. Our guest on this episode of the podcast is Captain Rachel Bear, the officer in charge of the veterinary treatment facility here on Fort Lee. We're going to be talking about feral cats and all things veterinarian. As always, if you like what you hear, please share our episodes far and wide. We'd love to get the word out to as many people as possible in the Fort Lee community. Also, subscribe to our podcast, punch that subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. Feel free to leave us a rating. If you have any comments, they are absolutely welcome wherever you find our podcast. And also feel free at any time to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. They're all at Army Fort Lee, one word at Army Fort Lee. And with that, please sit back and enjoy this episode of the Fort Lee Podcast. Welcome back to the Fort Lee Podcast. My guest today, as I mentioned earlier, Captain Rachel Baird from the Veterinary Treatment Facility. She's the officer in charge here at Fort Lee. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, just so we get it out of the way, where is the Veterinary Treatment Facility? So the VTF is located right across the street from DECA's headquarters. So it's on 38th Street at 11025. Um, it's also co-located with the Working Dog Kennels, if you happen to know where that is. Okay, so it's back in that that corner part of Fort yes, Lee back yes. there by the petroleum and all that stuff. So one of the topics we wanted to start with today, I think we'll talk about some veterinary services, general things later on, but one of the topics that's, that's kind of leadership is taking a look at is the issue of feral cats here on Fort Lee. So tell me a little bit about feral cats. Yeah, so feral cats is a distinction we like to make with, you know, cats out in the wild. Um, you know, stray animals versus feral animals have two different distinctions, mm -hmm. with stray animals being, you know, your dog or cat or whatever it might be that you have that just happened to escape into the world. So think, you know, your dog got loose, that's a stray animal. You know, it has a home, it's domesticated. It's largely thought to be friendly towards most humans, although obviously not every dog or cat is. Um, whereas feral animals are actually um, domesticated animals, typically cats in this country that are domesticated in terms of their species being domesticated by humans, but have reverted back to their natural wild instincts. So for all intents and purposes, they are no longer domestic animals. They are wild animals. So they are animals, cats in this case, that are living on Fort Lee that don't have an owner and they're just kind of wild. Yes, correct. Yeah, these these feral animals are, um, in, in Fort Lee's case, uh, you know, the feline versions are not friendly towards humans. They are not owned by any individual. Maybe their ancestors might have been owned mm -hmm. and, you know, had gotten out and created these colonies. But at the moment, these cats do not have owners, likely have had no to minimal human interaction and are not, you know, the same as your fluffy at home. Well, that's the, the next question then is what do they do differently? How do they act differently? What makes them feral? Uh, what makes them a problem? Yeah, so think of feral cats the same way you think of raccoons or possums. You know, they may come towards you for food. They may even try to interact with you in, you know, the right circumstances. But largely they are, you know, not friendly. Again, they typically do not enjoy human contact. They don't mm -hmm. seek to be around you for pleasure. They want to gain something from you, typically food, and otherwise are scared of you, don't want to be around you. And they typically coexist with humans in locations where there's plentiful food supplies, um, shelter, or um, other resources that they're trying to, you know, take for themselves. The same way any raccoon would that's kind of going after your trash cans um, in the back alleys, you know, they, they're still 
you know, wild animals. What size of population of feral cats do we have here at Fort Lee? I mean, and where are they and, and what, what do people need to look for? Yeah, so I would say it's a, a largely moderate size. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of hard to determine how many feral animals there are since, again, the only way to find these animals typically is by spotting them visually or by trapping them and somehow, you know, identifying them and releasing them and then, you know, keeping track of yeah, which They're ones not signing trap. in on a feral cat yeah, duty there, roster there's, or anything. Yeah, so. there's no sign-in sheet for these cats. And often they may look very similar. They may move around. Um, feral cats, as well as, you know, indoor-outdoor mm-hmm. cats that you may own, have very wide ranges of, of um, mileage that they cover and, you know, territory that they cover. So you may see one cat that's black with white markings near the commissary, and then a couple miles away you might see the same cat later in the day because that's, you know, his his territory, his his path that he walks every day. So it's kind of hard to tell how many we have, but we know that we have enough where it's starting to become a problem. And, again, typically it's around those places where there are resources. So Cats, again, they're opportunistic. They want to go places where they know they're going to get food. So they typically find places where there are dumpsters, places like um, outside of the commissary. There's a large um, colony back there um, outside of some of the shopettes because, you know, they they dispose of their products. They have expired products and goods. They know there's going to be some food supply out there for them. They might also be found near housing complexes if, you know, humans leave out food for them or outside of headquarters buildings if people are leaving food outside for them or have easy to access trash cans. You might see some cats wandering around those areas as well. So would you discourage people, especially in the housing areas, maybe from leaving food out? Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, one of the main um, deterrents for a cat is if there's no longer any resources, they're not going to come around. You know, Mm -hmm. they're going to want to find easy to access resources because, again, while they're wild and they can hunt for their food, they'll, you know, look for mice, they'll look for birds, um, you know, anything that they can kill and capture, they'll consume. If there's something easy for them to find, like a bowl of cat food just chilling in a shady spot, they're obviously going to seek that first and they're going to remember where that is and come consistently to that location. So one of the best deterrents for feral animals being on our post installation near our housing developments and things like that is to just not feed these animals and allow them to find food elsewhere, whether that's, you know, off post, they might wander through the gate and try to find better food, or they'll start catching their food and kind of start dispersing and um, maybe not reproducing in the quantities that they are currently. Do they present a risk or a danger to children in the housing areas if they're outside playing, or do feral cats typically run away from you? Uh, So it depends. I mean, feral cats, they can start learning that the human puts out the food, and they'll get a little bit more used to you as mm-hmm. you put out the food and they may come up to you and you know start getting closer and closer which may invite humans especially little children to kind of chase down the animal pet the animal when it's eating the food and while it may seem like the animal is friendly because it's coming towards you it may still react and lash out whether that's a scratch or a bite or um, what have you and we have had instances you know both in the general population and on post where you know humans whether it's adults or children may get bit by feral animals and you know be at risk for some of the major diseases that they carry what kind of diseases were those be yeah so the big one that we're concerned about is rabies virus so our feral animals are obviously not going to the veterinarian and getting their annual checkup and their vaccines like your pets would so a lot of these animals are unprotected against rabies virus Um, rabies virus is 100 percent deadly in humans if you don't receive the proper post 
um, post-phylactic care, essentially. So, you know, if you get exposed to a bat or a cat or something that might carry rabies, you go to the hospital, they give you a whole host of um, vaccines and you know, post post exposure care, right? And you know, while it's a pain in it, both on your pocketbook as well as <laughs> on your body, yeah. Um, you know, usually if you receive that care, there's not a risk to you anymore. But there is a risk if you know you don't know that you're exposed, or you brush it off. Maybe you got you know scratched or bit, and you didn't know it, or your ch- child got scratched or bit and you didn't know it, and then all of a sudden we have you know an un- unknown rabies case, you know, presenting in our populations. What about risks to pets, household pets of people who live on base? Yeah, so it's it's very similar, you know. Our dogs and cats are typically vaccinated for rabies. However, if you're overdue on rabies or if your dog doesn't have the strongest immune response to the vaccines, um, sometimes your vaccine titers can be low and maybe they need um, vaccines more often than others. They can still be at risk for rabies virus as well. So if you know a feral cat gets in a tussle with your indoor-outdoor cat on post or your dog's out for a walk and there's a feral cat that has rabies virus, you know they don't act quite right, right typically they might approach you and your dog and attack you for no reason you know they you you and your dog can both be at risk for rabies virus in addition to some of the other things that cats can carry they carry different types of parasites that if your dog or cat consumes they can you know take those parasites internally as well they might carry external parasites like fleas and ticks um, they might carry things like heartworm disease that might increase the risk of heartworm disease in the general population so you know via mosquito bites And in humans, you can get things like cat scratch fever if one of these cats scratches you and introduces that bacteria into you, as well as the fact that cats have very, very dirty mouths, much dirtier than, you know, dog mouths. So, you know, they always say if a dog licks you, you know, maybe it's not as dirty as our own mouths. So there's some similar adage with that. But with cats... Um, their mouths are significantly more dirty than ours or dogs, and they carry a lot of dangerous bacteria so that if you do get bit by a cat, you know, we, we sometimes get bit in the veterinary profession handling animals. Um, we often have to go to the ER and receive, um, you know, emergency medical care in terms of IV antibiotics or, right. um, you know, flushing procedures and things like that because they can be pretty dirty and they can progress with really quickly if we don't, you know, treat those diseases. So it poses a risk to both humans as well as your domestic pets. So pretty much stay away from the feral cats if you see them on base. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, while they look like they're, you know, super friendly and cuddly sometimes and even some of them might look like they um, want to interact with you, it's always best to stay away from any animal that um, seems like it's feral if it's unowned and, you know, get in contact with someone that can help you, you know, trap that animal and see if it has a home. Because, you know, again, most of these animals in these cat colonies are feral animals. However, there is the possibility that if your cat got out, maybe it assimilated into one of these colonies. Or if you see a dog on post, you know, we don't really have a feral dog colony. So if you typically see a dog on post, again, be cautious. I wouldn't necessarily approach it. I would call the MPs in both instances if you see a feral cat around or if you see a stray dog, what is likely a stray dog, um, and they can come trap it. They'll bring it to the veterinary treatment facility. We'll scan it for a microchip and see if it has a microchip. And if it doesn't, you know, we'll take the necessary steps to see if we can either um, reunite it with its owner by putting out um, um, flyers and things like that, or taking it to a off post shelter where they can um, put it up for adoption and, you know, find it a home that can take care of it. So let's uh, track back just a little bit. You've twice now mentioned cat colonies. Tell me a little bit about how, how cat colonies develop and what they're like. Yeah. So the cat colonies are a little different when you think about 
home cats versus feral cats. Home cats typically like to be the only cat around. Um, you know, they might get along with your other cats in the household and, you know, form friendships. But typically it's always thought that cats like to be solitary creatures, especially in small homes where they are, um, again, pretty territorial mm-hmm. animals. Um, in the wild, feral cats do typically form cat colonies where they kind of congregate together um, in Typically larger regions, um, the males may explore, you know, larger territories kind of seeking mates and, and food and whatnot, and they just kind of roam, mm-hmm. whereas the females and the babies might stay in one general area where um, resources are more likely to be found. So they do form what we call these cat colonies, where it's just a whole bunch of cats in one area. H- how many is a whole bunch? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, it. What, what's the range? Um. Honestly, I would say cat colonies can range from just a few animals to, I mean, in some instances, cat colonies, especially in, you know, large cities, you know, forested areas outside of cities or on certain island nations, things like that. Cat colonies can range into the hundreds. Oh, wow. I'm assuming ours aren't that big here in this area. Yeah. Again, we can't really tell how many we have. (laughs) I certainly don't think we have cat colonies in the several hundreds, but we may have a larger population than we think. And we likely have several different colonies based on the location that they kind of hang out in the most. And those are kind of like their family units. So, you know, they typically don't like outsiders. They breed, they have their babies, and they all kind of stay together in the same colonies. The males may roam and find their own colonies and, you know, reestablish their families. So we we likely have multiple different colonies themselves, but each one likely is not in those, you know, several hundred island nation type um, colony situations. And I'm assuming the cat colonies here Correct me if I'm wrong. Fort Lee is not huge, and the cat colonies don't necessarily observe the boundaries of Fort Lee either. So there's probably a, a, a fungible population. Yeah, absolutely. There are um, feral animals in most cities in the U.S. Um, you know, Petersburg, Colonial Heights, mm-hmm. um, Prince George are definitely no exception. Right. Um, there are feral animals and feral cats in those locations as well, and there's a possibility that these cats come in and out of the gate, and right. you know may try to find food in different locations based on the availability. So again, going back to not feeding the cats, hoping that they might leave the installation and kind of reassimilate back into what we could, you know, the civilian cat population of the feral animals so that, um, you know, they can be less concentrated on our small post and more dilute in the general population um, outside of post. Now, as I understand it, um, in some places there's issues where people decide to move and maybe they don't want to take the pets with them and they just let them out the back door. If somebody is in a situation, given the fact that, you know, uh, military personnel PCS all the time, every so many years, what what can somebody do if they say, hey, look, I can't take care of this cat, I'm moving, or maybe they just can't take care of the cat. They get an animal and they're like, hey, I can't, I can't do this. What should they do? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, PCS is obviously very hard on all individuals, and it may seem really daunting taking your cat or a dog mm-hmm. across the seas if you're you know, getting stationed from Fort Lee to Korea, right. Fort Lee to Hawaii, wherever it might be. And it's getting more and more expensive, too. Yeah, it's getting more expensive. There's a lot of requirements for these facilities. Um, you know, Going to Hawaii or going to Japan requires mm-hmm. multiple different steps, multiple different medications, vaccines. Um, you know, certain protocols in place that each country requires in order for them to stay either rabies free, you know, tapeworm free, whatever disease they're trying to prevent. Um, it might, might make it more difficult for owners to PCS with those animals, or it just might be, you know, difficult on your family life or home structure. And if you ever have any questions about, you know, 
whether or not you're going to be able to PCS, if you're worried about the process, or you know, worried you're not going to make the deadline, worried that your pet's not going to have everything it needs to get there, um, you know, definitely come see us. We do health certificates um, pretty much daily. Um, we see tons of health certificates because this population moves around um, very, very frequently. So we're very used to sending people all across the globe with their pets and the requirements of these countries, the timeline that we need to get you on and things like that. So if that's part of the issue, definitely come see us and we can always consult with that. If you still find that you know your pet is unable to come with you, you can't take care of it, whatever the case may be, there's always options for, um, you know, finding a shelter or a rescue environment that will take in your pet and try to find it a loving home, which I'm hoping that, you know, most owners that are in the situation love their pets, want the best for their pets and, you know, don't want to just let them out into the world and fend for themselves. Although that does happen. And, you know, cases like that can be mitigated by just getting in contact with local rescues and shelters and, you know, going through them or even putting, you know, ads on Facebook or, you know, other sites saying like, hey, I can't take care of this pet. Is anybody interested in, you know, giving it a home or know anybody who's looking for a dog or a cat that might be able to take it in or foster it or whatever it might be. But for in all these cases, whether somebody's PCSing or they just have an animal that they're like, okay, I don't know what to do with, you guys can help them at least start the process to, uh, to to finding a new home for their pet rather than letting a cat loose out the back door. Yeah, we can definitely provide resources and consults and things like that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we're not a boarding facility right. or anything like that. And the Fort Lee Stray Animal Facility has closed its doors, so it's no longer mm-hmm. accepting um, owner surrenders or um, stray animals that it's holding or things like that. Typically, they have to go off post if they truly do um, want to surrender their animal and you know do something along those lines. But you know, if you're worried about that, getting up to that point um, and just want to know what your options are, always come. You know, we're always open and willing to provide suggestions for that. Now, that kind of leads into the next topic I wanted to talk to you about, moving away from the feral cats, the more the more newsy, uh, the news peg here, and talking a little bit about, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the veterinary treatment facility and the services that you guys offer here at Fort Lee. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are part of the Veterinary Corps whose main mission, especially in, um, you know, units like ours where we're stationed at an installation and not um, a deployable unit, mostly focuses on the two main pillars of veterinary public health and animal health services, as well as the pillar of food protection, food security, and agricultural infrastructure. So all of that is to say we kind of break it down into three major areas that we focus on. One of them is public health, where we monitor select animal diseases, both in wild and domestic populations. We also deal with rabies animal bite reports. So, you know, if you come through the military installation, um, whether it's Kenner or off post and you have a bite that requires, um, you know, rabies consult Mm -hmm. or um, rabies vaccination, then we'll usually get those reports and, you know, follow up with the animal if possible and, you know, just make sure that everything's good on that end. Um, we also inspect and certify materials that are coming and going from overseas. We don't necessarily do that here at Fort Lee, but you might see that at other places where, um, you know, they're sending large amounts of supplies overseas to places like Germany and Europe and whatnot. You know, you just want to make sure that they're certified that we're not bringing um, dirt containing X, Y, or Z bugs or fungus or whatever it might be, you know, organic materials into those countries. So um, we'll often certify those materials. 
We also, under public health, um, inspect all of the kennels on post. So um, the military working dog kennels and um, the CDCs, if they have any animals, you know, typically pocket pets and things like that. Oh, gotcha. Fish, okay. Yeah. Um, we'll make sure that their living quarters are, um, you know, appropriate and um, follow the guidelines set forth to make sure that they live in um, a healthy environment. And we also support the human animal bond programs, which are those like animal assisted activity programs and therapy programs that, you know, provide care to um, individuals going through treatments and things like that. Um, Our biggest sector, you know, being a veterinary treatment facility is the animal health sector. Okay. So that's kind of, you know, my realm is focusing on the clinic itself. Um, We do comprehensive veterinary services for a whole host of animals. So we see DOD animals, which include our military working dogs, military working equines, which we don't have any of those here at Fort Lee. (laughs) But um, my previous installation, Fort Carson, had about 28 of them. So, you know, we do see some installations that have large numbers of equines. Um, Equines meaning horses. Equines meaning horses, yes. Yes. We also see um, some installations have military working falcons, which is pretty wow. cool. So, you know, the United States Air Force Academy has the the Falcons or the yeah. Raptors that, you know, the veterinarians will take care of as well. Um, any unit mascots, any um, Capitol Police, um, lab animals, stray or wild animals that come to our care are considered DOD animals. So we see a whole host of DOD animals as well as non-DOD government-owned animals like TSA, Border Patrol, um, obviously not found here, but other locations that mm-hmm. have those animals um, can be seen on post as well. And then we also see personally owned animals. So animals that you or I would own, you know, dogs or cats that you know, come in for routine services, um, which include wellnesses, um, procedures, sick calls, um, international and domestic health certificates, um, rabies bite quarantine exams, and things like that. So so who's eligible to come to your office and get services? Is it just uniformed or retirees eligible or, or who is it? Yeah, any um, beneficiary that's eligible to receive services on post um, is able to come to us. So if you are a dependent, if you're a retiree with benefits, Mm -hmm. if you are um, a disabled service member, any of the above, um, if you're able to receive services at things like the commissary and the Kenner Hospital, you can receive services through us as well. Well, that's really, I did not know that. So that's really cool. So what, generally speaking, I'm assuming you see cats and dogs, but I guess I'll ask this question. What's the most unusual animal you've seen come to your clinic here at Fort Lee? Unusual animal. I mean, we really only see cats or dogs um, in terms of, you know, what we accept in terms of appointments. I can't see that I really have seen any unusual animal, but I have seen unusual animals in the rest of my veterinary career that, you know, are are unique. Um, But unfortunately, we typically only see dogs and cats Ah, just for training purposes, regulation purposes, and, you know, the the ability for us as veterinarians to focus on those two species. So the answer is bring your dogs and cats, but your iguanas and your your bearded dragons and all that stuff, you have to find off post healthcare for. Yes, correct. We only see dogs and cats here at Fort Lee um, just because of our training as well as our resources and manpower. Um, dogs and cats is what we focus on. Um, there are exotic vets out in the practice that mm-hmm. are um, in our communities that you can always seek um, for your iguanas and things like that um, as well as large animal um, doctors for your horses and sheep and things. Okay there is another thing that the veterinary uh, corps is well known for doing. I think you guys call it food defense but it's like inspecting food and so on. Yes, so that's our th- our third big thing that we do at 
installations such as this is food protection and security. Mm -hmm. So that involves food defense as well as ensuring our food is um, safe and able to be consumed in a healthy manner for our soldiers um, that are both here as well as deploying. So we ensure that the food at our commissaries, our shopettes, and our restaurants like Popeye, Subway, things like that are inspected to make sure that they have cert- they meet certain standards. Do you also go to the defects as well or dining facilities? Yes. War- oh, warrior yes. restaurants. I'm sorry. That's oh, the, the yes. new terms. Warrior restaurants. Yes. So okay. we do the commissary. We do shopettes. We do the defects. We do um, restaurants on post. We do caterers on post. Oh, and wow. essentially anywhere that you would be able to find food on post, we inspect it. So what that means for us is we often meet the trucks at their deliveries. We make sure that the food is safe when it's being brought into these facilities. Um, We make sure that the food being stored on the shelves and in the storage areas is safe to consume and being marketed appropriately. We make sure that things that are being served that are hot are up to temperature, you know, proper regulations are being followed. We make sure that the facilities themselves are protected against anybody who might want to tamper with them or, um, you know, cause any kind of mayhem. Mm -hmm. You know, we make sure that they're secure and they're following the food defense um, portion of that food protection standpoint. So all of that to say, you know, we do a lot with anything subsistence wise that's brought on post. Um, You know, you'll typically have a food inspector associated with it in some degree. You know, we have our hands in a lot of pots and we just want to make sure that anything that you consume or purchase on post is safe and wholesome, essentially. So when you guys, since you guys do these inspections all the time and you're, you're looking at this, what are some common things that people could look at their food at home and say, oh, I should, you know, maybe not eat this or things that they should look for? I mean, obviously mold and things like that on your bread or your cheese or something. But what what are things that people could look for at home that could be useful to them? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our commissaries and our facilities do a really great job at inspecting um, products on our shelves to make sure that they're not expired, that they're not damaged in whatever way, and that they are, you know, presented adequately. However, you know, if you buy them off post and or, you you know, maybe one or two slips through the cracks here, always make sure that your products are within their expiration date before consuming. Always make sure that, you know, the packaging is not... Um, broken in any manner. And that means whether it's a canned good, making sure that doesn't have major dents, especially Mm -hmm. dents near the um, opening surface, making sure that bottled goods don't have a seal that's broken, making sure that everything is, you know, closed up as you would a new product. I think those are really great food defense portions and making sure that cans don't have any um, bulging in them as well, uh-huh. um, you know, worrying about that kind of um, toxin as well. So a lot of that is just looking at the container and making sure that it's still within its date range and it's still, um, you know, properly sealed up before consuming. Um, also just making sure that, you know, you take a look at it before you eat it. You know, I'm always guilty of saying, oh, we have some meat in the fridge, you know, it'll be fine. And then 10 days later, I look and I say, mm, when did I buy this? It's right. starting to look a little off in color. Right. And just knowing what your food is supposed to look like, how long it's able to stay in 
um, refrigeration after purchasing and how long they recommend um, keeping things around for before discarding them, especially for things like deli meats, fresh fish, Mm -hmm. and um, meats and, and dairy. All of those things can become contaminated pretty quickly and really need to observe the um, shelf life for them. And some of those products, you know, don't have expiration dates necessarily on them. They have packaged by dates. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just knowing how long, you know, a a raw chicken can stay in your fridge for before becoming dangerous is important. So, you know, sometimes I'll go through and if I know it's going to be a while before I eat it, you know, a couple of days and I'm going to start getting, getting near that line, I'll often put the date that we purchased it on there especially if we do more than one grocery run in a week, because you never know, you know, you think you got this chicken in your last run when it was two runs ago. And then all of a sudden you're cooking a chicken that's, you know, 10 days after its expiration date. Maybe it looks a little slimy, but you're like, nah, it looks okay. So, you know, all of those things to say is just using, um, you know, your visual and olfactory senses and making sure that everything seems as it should and not playing the line with, Eh, it's probably okay because I know we're all guilty of it. My husband and I are definitely guilty of it. My husband more than me, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, he's always like, no, it'll be fine. I have a strong stomach when in reality, you know, his stomach's probably not strong enough for what he's about to eat. So um, you never want to mess around. I I know I've, I have many times found that that bowl of beans that was cooked, you know, two or Mm -hmm. three weeks ago and it's got hair on it. Oh yeah. Okay. Get, get rid of that. Yep. Okay. So let's, let's switch a little bit here. And talk a little bit about a recruiting pitch, if you will. How does somebody become an Army veterinarian? What is the process? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there's a couple of different ways we can start out, all of which start with going to vet school. So, um, you know, to become a veterinarian in general, you have to do your undergraduate degree and then follow up with four years um, of veterinary school at an accredited university. What is a typical undergraduate degree pointing you toward veterinarian? So it used to be something along the lines of, you know, some science type background, whether it's biology, you know, some some schools have a pre-vet degree, some do chemistry, some, you know, something science based so that you get those prerequisites in there. But I know a lot of people coming out of school now that have things like an art history degree or an English degree. And they go to vet school just knowing that they did their prerequisites, but their degree was in something else. So maybe they have a minor in whatever that is because they spent so many, so many hours and credits, you know, learning those science-based backgrounds. But These days, because our education is so varied in terms of um, general education requirements in undergrad, a lot of these people do get a lot of science-based classes initially anyway, and you just kind of go have to go out of your way and get a couple of mo- couple more based on what vet school you want to go to. So, so you roll your science undergrad degree into a veterinary program. Correct, yeah. So you just have to meet whatever prerequisites the school you're looking at requires. Some schools require more specific classes or more abundance of classes than others. Um, but as long as you have the prerequisites for a veterinary school, sometimes, you know, you don't even necessarily have to finish your degree. Some people go at year three. Some people finish their degree while oh, wow. they're in vet school. Every circumstance is a little bit different, but... Um, Um, you know, getting to vet school, you can essentially be any major or any major, any minor, as long as you, you know, meet those requirements and have, you know, the appropriate experience and are selected. So, you know, that kind of brings you to vet school. Vet school is four years, you do your four years. And um, for some individuals in the veterinary corps, like myself, we receive a scholarship from the military 
um, after their first year. It's called the Health Professions Scholarship Program. Um, essentially pays for your remaining three years of vet school as well as gives you a stipend. So it's a nice financial um, cushion as well as the fact that, you know, you start receiving your military training um, during the summers as well. You come out and then you start serving. For the Health Professions Scholarship Program or HPSP, you get that scholarship for three years and you get out. You do a one-year internship at one of the um, several major sites for veterinary treatments. And then you'll get stationed at your first duty assignment and you'll serve out those remaining three years. Now, what kind of jobs are available? Like you mentioned, uh, some veterinarians are assigned to installations like like you are, like here at Fort Lee. What are the other jobs you can get when you... Uh, become commissioned and become an army veterinarian? Yeah, so um, there's a whole host of series. So we're what we call 64 alphas, that's our MLS. Um, I'm a 64 alpha, which means that I'm a field veterinarian. So 64 alpha is essentially your kind of mom and pop veterinarian. You know, we see a whole host of, you know, wellnesses, sick calls, things like that. We also can do things like civil affairs jobs. We can do um, special forces jobs, and we can also do, you know, food-specific jobs, although those are a little more uncommon. But all of us typically have um, food background as well at the 64 Alpha level. When you reach, you know, enough experience and or if you come in with this experience, you may also find yourself reclassing to a different specialty within the military. So you can go on to do your residency with the military once you serve a certain number of years, or you can always do it in the civilian world and then, you know, commission directly with the military and not have to worry about, you know, the scholarship right. and the all of that good stuff. So veterinarians can always come right after graduation. Some veterinarians come after practicing for 10 plus years oh, wow. okay. and then they join. So I, I've known both, both types of individuals and um, they can come in with their specialty degrees as well. But the military has a couple of specific specialty degrees. 64 Bravo is our um, kind of public health, food protection veterinarians typically have a master's in um, public health of some some sort. The 64 Charlies are lab animal veterinarians. So they're the ones that you might see at our research facilities okay. taking care of those lab animals and making sure that um, our research is being furthered to help soldiers, to help our working dogs and, you know, the general population as well as maintaining, you know, the, the health and welfare of those animals. Um, 64 Deltas are veterinary pathologists. So they are also typically co-located with the um, Charlies as well. So at these larger research institutes, um, they also are at the Joint Pathology Center in um, near Washington, D.C. And they'll, you know, read out samples, mm-hmm. come to diagnoses for your pets. You know, if we send out samples for biopsy or cytology, they'll be the ones reading it for us. Um, They can do some diagnostics as well, and they can be found, you know, typically where any major research institutes are in the military. And then 64 Echoes are our um, researchers, essentially. So, you know, PhD level veterinarians. So you go to veterinary school and then you still want to go to more schooling and then they do five or plus more years of school, get another degree. Um, so double doctors, they right. have their PhDs as well. And they'll be the ones leading those um, um, studies. And then the final category is Foxtrot. So 64 Foxtrot. And that's kind of a catch-all for all of our clinically board-certified veterinarians in 
areas that the military finds really beneficial to kind of have for mostly for our working dogs um, mm-hmm. and their population. So that includes radiologists, that includes internal medicine doctors, that includes emergency critical care doctors, surgeons, um, some behaviorists, and, you know, a couple miscellaneous, um, you know, fields as well. So there's a whole range of veterinarians and their jobs and their duties and what constitutes what we do so we really can go anywhere do anything and be anything in the military which is pretty cool so you know start out at the alpha level and kind of find your path and specialize in whatever you know area makes you happy um and you know continue your career are there enlisted um, MOSs as well that work with the, with the veterinarians? Yes. So we have 68 Tangos and 68 Romeos. Okay. 68 Tangos are our um, animal health technicians. So what you think of as, you know, the veterinary nurses and um, okay. um, the 68 Romeos are our food inspectors. So those are the, the individuals that are going out and doing all of this legwork to make sure that all of these facilities are um, up to standards for you and making sure that your food is safe and defended. So you can come into the veterinary corps either from an officer path, a track, or you can come in from an enlisted track as well. Yes, yes. You can come from both sides and different missions as well. There are other individuals, you know, associated with the vet corps and, you know, tons of support staff as well. So there's lots of ways to get involved with the veterinary corps. But, you know, those are the people that we work with on a day to day is, you know, the officers themselves, as well as our tangos and our Romeos. Okay, what do you like most about being a veterinarian? And maybe let's even go, what do you like most about being an army veterinarian? Yeah, so I really love the variety in my days. Um, I also work off post occasionally and, you know, being in veterinary school is just medicine, medicine, medicine all the time. And don't get me wrong, I went to veterinary school to become a veterinarian and do medicine. And it's something that I love. But man, it gets exhausting, you know, just seeing pet after pet after pet, you know, takes a huge toll on you, especially when you see a lot of ill pets, a lot of pets that are elderly and maybe don't have much time left. And a lot of that can be pretty um, hard on the day to day life, especially if you're putting on, you know, a lot of hours just doing clinical med, like most veterinarians do out in, you know, Mm -hmm. normal practice. So I really enjoy that my days are always different, you know, going from doing a commercial audit of a food facility uh, that produces, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables or a caterer and learning what their process is like, because that's another thing that we do is, you know, go inspect these facilities and make sure that the sources of your food. So, you know, the the name brand drinks or vegetables or ready-to-eat foods that we bring onto post are produced appropriately in the facilities. So it's really cool being able to kind of go out there and see what what the facilities look like for the products that I'm eating and learning how they make the things that I'm consuming. So, you know, I could be doing that one day and then the next day I'm seeing clinics, the next day I'm doing surgery. And then I come in and I train my soldiers on working dog, um, TCCC and, um, interacting with the military working dogs, doing things like the working dog competition that just completed over at Fort Bragg and, Mm -hmm. you know, getting to participate in a lot of these, um, really awesome training events. It's not something that you typically see, as a veterinarian out in private practice, you know, I don't know a lot of veterinarians who can say they've been up in a chopper, chopper with a <laughs> military working dog or, you know, running trauma lanes um, on a Thursday afternoon right. or, you know, inspecting a food facility 
and then switching over and going and doing health certs. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that we can do and it kind of keeps my interest flowing and, and gives me a break from each respective area by, you know, always having different variety. This is kind of a similar question to what I just asked you, but what's one thing you wish people understood about the veterinary core? So one really important thing to understand about us is that we have a very large mission with very different um, areas of focus. So we have that food mission, we have that public health mission, and we have the veterinary mission. So while our clients and their pets are one of our top most priorities, we do have multiple different demands and a very, very high tempo mission. So I just want people to be aware that if they're trying to reach us, you know, we're here to support them. We're here to provide any kind of service that we can for them. But it might be a little difficult to get a hold of us on certain days via phone or email. So when in doubt, always just drop by in person during our business hours, um, typically 9 to 12 Mondays and Fridays, and then 8 to 4 on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And, you know, talk to us in person, schedule an appointment, ask ask a question, you know, find out what requirements are for travel, whatever it might be. But it's always best to speak with us in person. So during those business hours, there's somebody there always. Yeah, there should be. And if there's not, we always put a sign on the door. Um, There's a few exceptions where we might be closed for like end of month inventory. We might close the last day of the month. Or if we have um, an ATX at Fort Bragg, we have to travel to, we'll always post that signage on there as well. But almost always, you know, during our normal business week, we always have someone at the front desk. So that's a good place to, to tie it all back up again. So you're located at it's 11025 38th Street. It's very easy to find us on Google Maps. Just search um, Fort Lee Veterinary Treatment Facility. We pop right up. Okay, give me those hours again, those business hours when you're, you're there. Yeah, so currently our business hours are Mondays and Fridays from 9 in the morning until 12, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 8 until 4. And if somebody wants to call, uh, what is your phone number at the, at the veterinary clinic? So you can reach us at 804-734-2446. And you can also shoot us an email at fortleevetclinic at gmail.com. Well, that's great. Okay. Well, thank you for being with us today. That was Captain Rachel Bear, the Veterinary Treatment Facility OIC here at Fort Lee. Thank you again. Uh, We appreciate your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. That is a wrap for this edition of the Fort Lee Podcast. Thank you for joining us and please join us next time.